Well, good evening, everybody. So uh, what is the deal with all of this? I mean, what about all these fantastic stories in the Bible about Jonah and the great fish, about uh, the sun standing still, about Noah's flood? I mean, can I tonight get up here and answer all the questions that we just saw in the video? Can I prove to you that all these things really happen the way the Bible said? Absolutely not. These are statements of the Bible that are supernatural in their character, and there's no way to prove them. We either accept them the way the Bible narrates them or we don't. And oh, by the way, where did Mrs. Cain come from? Well, I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us, and I can't answer that question. We say, well, then therefore the Bible is historically, it's inaccurate, it is undependable, it's untrustworthy. Well, wait a minute. Uh, Nobody who's a critic of the Bible can prove these things didn't happen. So let's go to an area where we can actually compare notes. Let's talk about an area where we can submit the Bible to a rigorous examination on the basis of the critics criticizing it. And let's see if the Bible can stand the test. And here's my logic. If we can take places where the Bible can be submitted to a rigorous examination, and if we can show that the Bible can stand up under that rigorous examination, then it certainly seems reasonable to to extrapolate to those places where the Bible cannot be checked out and say they ought to be given the benefit of the doubt. So that's kind of what I want to do this evening. I want us to let the critics attack the Bible in two areas where we can check it out. Historical accuracy, is the Bible historically reliable? And number two, is the Bible a book that has a supernatural character? And if we can prove those two things, then I think the weight of the evidence would certainly indicate we've got to give the Bible the benefit of the doubt on Cain's wife and some of these other things. So that's what we want to talk about tonight. We're in the middle of a series called, Can the Bible Stand the Test? In the first two parts, we looked at the scientists' uh, approach to the Bible. We looked at the evolutionary theory of how the world came into being and the evolutionary theory of how human life came into being. And uh, I'm not going to go back and review all that, but if you miss those two messages, I urge you to get the CD in the bookstore. I urge you to go on the internet and download those messages because what we saw is that the Bible actually stands up to the test of science much better than you've been led to believe by your high school biology teacher or your college physics or chemistry teacher. You need to check that out. But what we want to do tonight is finish up by letting the critics go at the Bible's historical accuracy. Let's let the critics go at the Bible's supernatural character, and let's see where we come out. What do you say? Now, John Murray, let's start with historical accuracy. John Murray, you say, sounds uh, familiar. Well, you know Madeline Murray O'Hare, this is her son. He's the president of the American Atheists, and here's what he said, and I quote. He said, the Bible is a fictional, non-historical book. It is a myth that is good for business. Now, is that really what the Bible is? Is the Bible non-historical? Is it fictional? Uh, Is there nothing in the Bible that is really historically accurate and reliable? Well, let's check it out and see. And so I've got 10 or 12 of these attacks that have been leveled against the Bible. And what I want to do is bring archaeology to bear on every single one of these. And let's see, you know, is the Bible right or, or is the Bible unreliable? Number one, critics of the Bible used to say, 
that Moses could never have written the first five books of the Bible because in 1500 BC, when the Bible says Moses lived, people couldn't write. Well, now we know from archaeology that actually people could write all the way back till 3000 BC. We have hundreds and thousands of documents that have been on earth, everything from law codes to legal documents to sales agreement. You know, Domzu sells Nerdu, three pigs for two cows, that kind of stuff. In fact, let me show you a picture. This is actually a clay tablet from 1900 BC called the Gilgamesh Epic. And what this is about, it's a Babylonian account of a great flood that wiped out everybody on the earth except for one man, a fellow named Gilgamesh. Sound familiar at all? And you know, the interesting thing is in this account, the reason that the Gilgamesh epic gives for why the god Enlil wiped out the earth with a flood is because human beings were making so much noise that he couldn't get any sleep. So he wiped us out. Well, if that were true, I would have wiped my teenagers out years ago. But anyway, the point is, this comes from 1900 B.C., 400 years before Moses was ever born, and people could write very well, thank you. Well, critics of the Bible, second of all, say that, you know, Abraham never existed at all, or if he did exist, what the Bible says about his day and his time is completely inaccurate. And, and uh, so what about this? Did Abraham really live or, or the, what the Bible says about him? Does it really reflect what the, what, what, the, uh, what the culture of that time was? Well, let's check that out. Or the Chaldees, for example. This was the city that Abraham came from and uh, his hometown. And people said that city never even really existed, or if it did exist, it was like a little, you know, camel stop somewhere in the middle of nowhere. Well, friends, in 1922, Leonard Woolley dug it up, and what Leonard Woolley found is that it was a large, prosperous city, exactly the way the Bible says. You know, these same critics said, well, you know, the story of Abraham tells us about Sodom and Gomorrah, and that uh, this whole Jordan Valley was all green and full of, of cities and wealth, and yet, you know, uh, right now, it's desolate. It's like a complete desert. The Bible is totally wrong. That is until Nelson Gleek, the archaeologist, did some work there and found 70 cities in the Jordan Valley, right where Sodom and Gomorrah are, and found that at the time of Abraham, they were overrun with wealth, just like the Bible says. Well, let's go on. A third thing. The Bible says, critics of the Bible said that the customs of Abraham as described in the book of Genesis, things Abraham did, that uh, they, they, those are absolutely foreign to the ancient Near East at the time, 2000 BC, when the Bible says Abraham lived. Well, is that true? Well, we didn't know until a few years ago when a, little, when a city in northwest Iraq was unearthed called Nuzi, N-U-Z-I, and we found thousands of clay tablets from Nuzi dating back to the time when the Bible says Abraham lived, talking about the everyday affairs of life. For example, in Nuzi, if your wife could not have a child, you were allowed to take her handmaiden and have surrogate children by her handmaiden. Does that sound familiar? And in Nuzi, if your wife then got pregnant and she wanted the handmaid and her children out, you could throw them out and it was not illegal to do so. Does that sound familiar, Hagar and Ishmael? You remember them? In Nuzi, we find out that the blessing of a father always went to the oldest son and it was sacrosanct. It couldn't be sold. It couldn't be traded. It could be stolen. 
Does that sound familiar? And, however, even though the blessing was sacrosanct, the birthright, that is the inheritance rights, could actually be sold to other members of the family if you wanted to sell it like Esau did to Jacob, and on and on and on. We find all of these customs that the Bible records Abraham practice, so much so that William F. Albright, probably the greatest American archaeologist ever to live, and oh, by the way, not a believer, said this, and I quote, it is now becoming increasingly clear that the traditions of the patriarchal age, that is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, preserved in the book of Genesis, reflect with remarkable accuracy the actual conditions of the ancient Near East in the Middle Bronze Age, that is in the time when Abraham actually lived. Very interesting. All right, number four. Critics of the Bible once said, you know the Hittites? You know, there's all kinds of tights in there. You know, there's the Perizzites and the Gibeonites and the Perizzites and the Hittites and the Termites. I mean, they're all in there, you know. But anyway, that the Hittites, that they never even existed. They, they said, we've never even found any reference to these guys anywhere except in the Bible. That is until Hugh Winkler in a German expedition found in central Turkey, Bogoskoy, the capital of the great Hittite empire. Let's show you, this is actually a, um, a slide of the entrance to the city of Bogoskoy. And by the way, if you don't read German, that says the Hittite main gate right there. And uh, that's what this city is all about. And it's exactly there of this huge empire exactly the way the Bible says. Hey, critics of the Bible once said, you know all that gold that the Bible says Moses and the Israelites brought out of Egypt? You know, enough gold that they, they built this huge tabernacle and everything? There was never that much gold in all of Egypt. Oh, really? Well, we never knew for sure how much gold was there because, you know, every single tomb of every single pharaoh has been raided by grave robbers. And so even the Great Pyramids, there's nothing left. We don't really know how much gold was there. At least we didn't until 1922 when Howard Carter found the tomb of King Tutankhamun. We call him today King Tut. That's the same guy. And Carter, when he looked in, this was a tomb that the grave robbers missed. There was so much gold in that tomb that he had to sit down and pull himself together before he could even go in. He was so overwhelmed. Here's the great mask of King Tut. Solid gold, by the way, in jewels. And as a matter of fact, in that tomb, we found the inner coffin of King Tut. It was solid gold and it weighs 243 pounds of solid gold. And you know what, King Tut, he was a small potatoes pharaoh. He only ruled eight years. If there was this much gold in his tomb and he's a small potatoes pharaoh, just think how much gold the big potato pharaohs like Yul Brenner must have had. Those guys must have had unbelievable amounts. Was there that much gold there for Moses to bring out? You bet there was, just like the Bible says. Hey, critics of the Bible said that you know where it says in the Bible that David captured Jerusalem by sending Joab, his general, up through this water shaft to get into the city secretly and unlock the gate. There's no such water shaft, and that's a ridiculous story. Oh, wait a minute. That wasn't until Charles Warren, the great archaeologist, discovered the shaft. I'll show you a picture of it. Here it is in long distance. Let's show you another one close up and down in the middle of it. That's plenty big enough for a human being to go through. And that's the exact shaft that Joab climbed up, just the way the Bible says, and actually opened the gate from the inside, letting David in. 
Critics of the Bible once said that we don't even know David existed. I mean, other than the Bible, David is never mentioned anywhere in any secular text of any kind. Uh-oh, wait a minute. That is until 1993. When an archaeological team digging up north at Dan, Tel Dan in the north of Israel, found this, uh, this inscription, we'll show it to you, and right here, now you're going to have to take my word on this unless you can read ancient Hebrew, but right here on this inscription is the reference to David, the actual name of David, because this is a victory monument set up by King Hazael of Syria, boasting about he had just had a victory over the house of David. And so, of course, David lived. The guy refers to him in this monument, just like the Bible said. Hey, critics of the Bible once said, you know, Pontius Pilate, you know the guy in the New Testament who washed his hands and said, it's not my problem? That guy, which well, sounds like he lives in Washington, but that guy, they say, never even existed. We never found his name in any Roman record anywhere. And oh, by the way, Caiaphas, the high priest who supposedly condemned Jesus, we don't have his name anywhere either. He probably, they probably made both of these names up. Uh-oh, wait a minute. 1961, doing excavations in the city of Caesarea. All of a sudden, one day they hit this stone. Let's show it to you. And this is called the Pontius Pilate Stone. Guess why? Because right here in this line is the name of Pontius Pilate. Here's the end of Pontius. Here is P-I-L-A-T-U-S. Guess what that spells? That spells Pilate in, in, in Latin. And here's his stone with this guy's name, big as life on it, that they dig out of the ground. And speaking of Caiaphas, our friend the high priest... Uh, several years ago, they were digging a foundation to put up an apartment building. It was 1990, and they crashed into this tomb that they didn't even know was there. And inside, they found this ossuary. You say, an ossuary? What in the world is that? Well, it's a bone box. See, what they did back then is when you died, they put you in the ground for a year till all your flesh melted off your bones. Then they dug you back up to your bones. That's all that was left. And they put you in a little box like this, so that way they could reuse the ground to do this to somebody else. I know that's a little sick, but that's what they did. So anyway, this is his bone box. And right on the side here is the bigger than life, the letters Joseph Caiaphas. And so I think this is ironic as can be. Jesus, who he condemned to death, rose from the deads in heaven. And this guy, we got his bones. I think that's kind of cool. But anyway, let's go on. Of course he existed, exactly the way the Bible said. Hey, you know, the Bible said there was a, a tremendous synagogue in the city of Capernaum. Well, let's show you. We found it. There it is, big as life. You know, the Bible says that Hezekiah, 2 Chronicles 32, built a tunnel under Jerusalem to bring water in. And guess what? Here it is. We found it, and actually in here we, act, we found an inscription, let's show it to you, that tells the story of how they started digging at one end with, picks, with axe and picks, and how they started dig, digging from the other end with pickaxes, and how they heard themselves coming towards the middle until they finally met through solid rock. Sounds like the golden spike sort of deal, and that's kind of what it is, exactly the way the Bible says. Hey, the Bible tells us that on Paul's first missionary journey, he went to Paphos, the capital of Cyprus, and he led the God of Christ there named Sergius Paulus, who was the Roman proconsul of the island. Well, we didn't have much of a record of this guy until a few years ago. They dug this stone out of the ground. Let's show it to you. And right here on this stone is the name of Sergius Paulus, and it even calls him the proconsul. Ha-ha. Hey, you know what? 
The Bible tells us in 2 Kings chapter 10 that there was a guy named Jehu who was the king of the northern kingdom and that he became a vassal of King Sennacherib of Assyria. So look what we found. We found the black obelisk. It looks a little bit like the uh, uh, Washington Monument. This was the black obelisk made by King Shalmaneser, the same guy the Bible talks about. And on one of the plates of the black obelisk, let me show you this up close. Here is King Sennacherib standing here. And guess who this is? Well, if you could read Akkadian across the bottom, you'd find out it's King Jehu, son of Omri, king of Israel. This is the only picture we have anywhere in the world of what an actual king of Israel looked like. And here he is bowing down and presenting tribute to King Sennacherib. Why? Because he's a vassal of King Sennacherib, exactly the way the Bible said. I got just a couple more for you. Critics of the Bible once said that the nation of Israel never even existed as a coagulated political nation until 500 B.C. You know, this idea of Joshua leading them in and taking over the country and capturing Jericho, ridiculous. They weren't even a country. They weren't even a nation for another five or eight hundred years after that. Well, then we found this wonderful victory monument by a pharaoh named Merenepta. You say, what was his name? Merenepta. Just trust me on that. And Merenepta, this pharaoh, invaded Palestine, Canaan, in the year 1208, and he set up this victory stela, and right here, this little dark square that we've magnified for you, in this dark square, he records 1208 B.C., these words, Israel is laid waste, his seed is not confirming that the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, were a political entity in the land of Canaan in 1208 B.C. when he invaded exactly the way the Bible says they should be. Last of all, I got a million of them, but we'll just give you one more. A lot of the critics of the Bible say, you know, Jesus, he never even existed as a real historical character. Albert Schweitzer, some of you know this great guy, Nobel Prize winner and everything, he said he wrote a book called The Quest for the Historical Jesus and said there was no historical Jesus. He never existed. Our good friend John Murray, you know, the American atheist guy, said, and I quote, there was no such person in the history of the world as Jesus Christ. There was no historical, living, breathing human being by that name ever. Well, John, we got a problem. And let me show you what it is. It's another one of those bone boxes. And this one was just found a month ago. Some of you read about it in the Wall Street Journal. Some of you read about it in Time Magazine. Some of you saw it on CNN. It was just found a month ago. And this bone box, let me tell you what it says. These are the letters. Now, we've taken them and made them bigger for you because they're actually inscribed right here on the side and you can't see them that well. And here's what it says. It says, James, Yaakov, the son of Joseph, the brother of Jesus. You say, what? You say, no, come on. Yeah, I'm telling you the truth. This is James, the son of Joseph, the brother of Jesus. And you know, on these ossuaries, it's very strange to have a brother referred to. Very often they'll say, my name is so-and-so and and I'm the son of so-and-so. 
But as a, 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 as a general rule, you never record anything beyond that. So why would James, the son of Joseph, actually write his brother's name on here unless his brother was so well known that everybody in town would have known who his brother was? And you say, Lon, come on now, this has got to be a hoax. I mean, you know, somebody, there's no way this can be a reference to Jesus like of Nazareth. Well, listen, this was sent to Dr. Andre Lemaire, one of the greatest experts in ancient inscriptions anywhere in the world. And he published an article in Biblical Archaeology Review, and here's what he said, and I quote. He said, I have studied the James, this James Ossuary, you know, bone box. Now, you know that now. You guys are like archaeologists now. This James Ossuary from every possible angle and consulted with eminent scholars regarding various aspects of it. We have even studied it with an SEM, that is a scanning electron microscope, and with an EDS, that's an electron dispersion spectroscopy, and I am pleased to report that in my judgment, it is genuinely ancient and not a fake. This guy's not a believer now. It seems very probable that this is the ossuary of James in the New Testament, and that with it, we have the first epigraphic that is written mention outside the Bible from around 63 AD of Jesus of Nazareth, end of quote. Jesus of Nazareth didn't exist? Sure he did. His name's on his bone box from 63 AD. Of course he existed. And we could go on and on and on like the Energizer buddy, bunny, buddy, buddy, bunny, whatever. But the point is, the point is, friends, that uh, I've got a wonderful quote to share with you. It says this, the more we dig out of the ground, the more the Bible proves to be right. Indiana Jones didn't say that. I said that. Okay, now. Now you say, okay, 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 time, I, I get it. Okay, as a matter of fact, if you ever go to Israel with me, I'll take you to the Israeli museum because we go there and I'll let you see these things. You can see the Pontius Pilate stone. You can see the Caiaphas ossuary. You can touch them. If the guard's not looking, <laughs> you can touch them, um, you know, but, um, but these things are real. I'm not kidding you. You can actually go see these things. Now, you say, well, Lon, uh, all right, all right, all right. I give, you know, a little bit of overload here, but I give. But, but none, of this, none of this proves that the Bible is a supernatural book. Okay, maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe it is historically accurate. But prove to me it really has the supernatural character that God claims that it has. Well, let me tell you how I believe we can do that. It's through this thing called fulfilled prophecy. Isaiah 46, verse 10, God says, I am God and there is none other. And I declare in the Bible from ancient times things that have not happened yet. You understand what God is saying here? He's saying in order to prove to people that I really exist, and in order to prove to people that the Bible really is a book of supernatural origin, I'm going to tell you things in the Bible hundreds of years before they happen, so when they happen, you know I'm real and you know the Bible's for me. We say, what are some of the things he did that? Well, I mean, I could go on, but Isaiah chapter 13, the Bible predicted the fall of Babylon in great detail 200 years before it happened, and it happened just like Isaiah 13 said. In Daniel chapter 2 and chapter 11, over 500 years of the political fortunes of the ancient Near East are predicted. The Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire, the Median Empire, the Greek Empire, Alexander the Great, dividing up in four different 
different directions with four different generals after the death of Alexander. And in fact, it's so precise in its predictions, the only way its critics can handle the book of Daniel is to declare that the book of Daniel is a forgery that wasn't written until the time of Christ. But we know that can't be true because we've got copies of the book of Daniel from almost 200 years before the time of Christ that we discovered in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And then how about all the predictions in the Old Testament about Jesus? Over 30 of them. You say, like what? Well, like the Bible predicts the virgin birth, Isaiah 7. It predicts the, that Jesus would be a descendant of David, Isaiah 11. It predicts that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, Micah chapter 5. It predicts John the Baptist. It predicts that Galilee would be Jesus' headquarters, Isaiah 9. It predicts the betrayal of Judas for 30 pieces of silver that would be thrown into a potter's field, Zechariah 12 and 13. It predicts that, that there would be a crucifixion, Psalm 22, that the guards would actually cast lots for Jesus's coat there at the cross, Psalm 22. In fact, even some of the exact words that Jesus's enemies said are predicted in the Old Testament along with the resurrection. Over 30 of these. In fact, I got a letter from Richard Park, one of the members of our staff, and he said this, Lon, during this past week, I was talking with a research scientist and mathematician formerly employed at the Pentagon who researched 30 of the clearest Old Testament prophecies referring to Jesus. And she calculated that the probability of one and the same person fulfilling all 30 prophecies was one chance times 10 with 100 zeros after it. End of quote. Now, friends, I'm not a professional mathematician and I can't confirm those numbers. But even if she's half right, and it's only 50 zeros, even if she's a quarter right, and it's only 25 zeros after it, wouldn't you like to go to Las Vegas with odds like that on your side? You'd be a rich lady, a rich man. Hey, let me tell you something. The reason God gave us all of these prophecies and then fulfilled them exactly was to do what he said in Isaiah 46, to show us that he's real and to prove to us that the Bible is a supernatural book from a supernatural God giving a supernatural truth about a supernatural Messiah who died on the cross to give us a supernatural relationship with God so we can live a supernatural life that has a supernatural destination in heaven when we're done. This is what the Bible is. And you know tonight, if you're here and you came with an open mind and an open heart, I've given you enough evidence to make it reasonable for you to believe the Bible is what it claims to be. Can I prove it beyond any shadow of a doubt? No. Can I prove Noah's flood or that Jonah got swallowed by a fish? We already said I can't do that. But what I can do is prove to you that the Bible is historically accurate to a fault. And what I can do is prove to you the Bible is a book with a supernatural character that defies explanation except that a supernatural God wrote it. I was in Israel several years ago and we were going through um, security and I had a young lady, an army uh, uh, officer, who um, was asking me some questions because I'm the tour leader and that's kind of how they do it. And so she said to me, she said, what kind of tour is this? And I said, well, it's a, um, it's a Christian tour. And she said, really? And she had my passport and she looked at it and she goes, Solomon, Solomon. I said, yeah. She said, that's, a, that's a strange name. And I said, well, I'm Jewish. She said, you're Jewish and you're a priest? 
well, it wasn't worth the trouble to try to explain the nuances. And so I said, yeah, yeah, that's close enough. She said, how can you be Jewish and be a priest? I said, well, because I'm a Jewish person who believes that Jesus is the Messiah. And she looked at me and said, what possible evidence could there be to believe something as nutty as that? (laughs) And I said, would you believe 10 with 100 zeros after it? She said, what are you talking about? Oh, we sat down. We had a wonderful conversation for about 10 minutes. And then she said, look, 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 I got to go. But she said, hey, wait, just before I go, she said, answer me one question. She said, don't you ever wonder if you're wrong? And I said, let me tell you something. When I got 10 with 100 zeros after it, no, no, I never wonder that I'm wrong. And folks, if you're here and some biology teacher shook your faith in the Bible, if you're here and some smart-talking college professor shook your faith in the Bible, If you're here and some friends, pseudo-intellectual friends, have undermined your confidence in the Bible, I'm here to tell you, don't pay any attention to them. The Bible stands the test. We've spent three weeks saying the Bible stands the test. I can't prove it to you like I can two plus two is four, but I've given you enough evidence to make believing the Bible, believing it as a reliable document historically, a reliable document Uh, supernaturally and a reliable document scientifically, I've given you enough evidence to make that a reasonable and logical position. And let me just tell you what Jesus said. He said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word, my word will never pass away. And if you want to go into eternity safe, secure, and all locked down tight, let me tell you how to go into eternity, friends. Go into eternity holding on to the Word of God. Go into eternity believing the Word of God. Go into eternity basing your entire eternal destiny on the promises of the Word of God. And I promise you, when the smoke clears, you're going to be just fine. Now, if you're here tonight and you've never trusted Jesus in a real and personal way, and one of the things that's hung you up for years is all of this conflict that you've been hearing about, I hope you'll listen to these three messages, maybe listen to them over and over, digest all the information, because there's a lot of information in here. And I hope the result of that will be that you'll give serious consideration to who Jesus says he is, because I'm telling you the document that tells us about him is a reliable document that can stand the test. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for talking to us these last three weeks about the Bible and whether it really can stand the test of a thorough examination, scientifically, historically, and supernaturally. Now, Lord, where does that really leave us? Well, it leaves us with awful strong evidence that the Bible is what it claims to be. And if that's true, then that means that we are called upon by you to surrender our lives to the Lord Jesus, to trust what he did for us on the cross, and to go into eternity holding on to that as our confidence to face the living God. And the wonderful good news is that when we go into eternity holding on to the truth of the Bible, we have nothing to fear because as Jesus said, heaven and earth might pass away but my word will never pass away. Lord, give us that kind of confidence in the word of God. Encourage our faith and grant that we might be willing to listen to you when you talk to us from the scripture because we accept it and attribute to it 
trustworthiness, veracity, and integrity. Thanks for talking to us through this series. Change our lives because we were here and learned these things. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.